All right. Last Sunday and this Sunday, we've been focusing on God's urgent call to us to grow and mature spiritually and morally. Last week, we used the football analogy of, of pressing the ball down the field of spiritual growth. And we also remembered that growing to maturity is a team sport, right? Um, so last week, we looked at one playbook which we could use together to get down the field. We looked at the 30 core competencies. And this morning, we want to look at another playbook which we could use and which the youth have been using, the life shapes. Um, I've introduced several of these shapes in past sermons. I've introduced the circle and the triangle and the hexagon. And the youth, when I'm done, will introduce us to the square. Um, if you weren't here last Sunday, there's a uh, green summary of both the core competencies and the life shapes that was in the bulletin last week. And there are extra copies on the table in the foyer if you want to pick one up and look these over. Uh, please continue to chew these over, to take a look at them, to raise questions you have, things you don't understand, comments or input that you have to any of us as elders as we um, try to discern together which of these might be a more, more helpful playbook for our team to get down the field. Um, in the discussion group today, there'll be a, another chance to discuss these as well. If we get to the last question, sometimes we run out of time, but hopefully they'll We'll save time to talk about that in the discussion group. Today, we're in the second letter of Peter, chapter 3. It's page 861 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you, page 861. And here, Peter picks up this theme of the importance of growing spiritually again. We looked at 2 Peter 1 last week. This time, he looks at the theme in light of false teachers who were teaching that your moral behavior isn't really so important after all. I don't know about you, but I've run across plenty of skeptical people who sound very intelligent and who have good, reasonable-sounding arguments for not taking God seriously. More than that, they have a way of making you feel old-fashioned and superstitious and naive for believing that spiritual stuff. And even if you can see through their arguments and if you disagree with their opinion, when you hang around with these sort of people or you sit in their classroom or you watch them on TV or read their articles or blogs, they have a way of dulling your faith, of pulling you off your game, of making you think, well, who really knows for sure? I mean, maybe I sh I'm taking Jesus too seriously. Maybe I should just kind of get on with life. And then before we know it, we're, we're kind of going with the flow. We're going along with the crowd. We're acting in ways which are clearly not what God wants for us. You see, what we think and what we really believe really does affect how we ultimately act. Our worldview, how we see the world, influences our behavior. That's why the core competencies we looked at last week have to do with what we believe as well as with our practices and our virtues. Each affects the other. For example, if I believe the Bible is God's authoritative word, I'm more likely to actually study it than if I don't believe those things. Our beliefs affect our actions. So what's the remedy for us when the opinions of others are swaying us from what we really believe? 
Well, Peter tells us, starting in verse 1, he says we need to remember so our mind will be clear and undivided. Dear friends, he writes, I've written two letters to you as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Literally, the Greek is to stimulate you to a pure and undivided mind. So you're single-minded, clear-minded. Peter wants to remind his readers of what they know, to help them to think clearly, to, to be single-minded in their perspective. In verse 2, he says that he's going to remind us of two things. One, the word of the prophets, and two, the command of Jesus. The false teachers that Peter is countering were evidently calling both of these into question. They were openly skeptical about whether Jesus was going to return as the prophets and Jesus himself had declared. And therefore, they were skeptical about whether anyone really needed to take the commands of Jesus too seriously. Verse 4 highlights what they were saying. Where, where is this coming that Jesus promised? And everything goes on since the beginning of creation. In other words, God doesn't really get involved in this world. He, he hasn't in the past, and he's not going to in the future. In verse 3, Peter calls these teachers scoffers. They were probably sophisticated intellectuals who looked down their noses at simple, unenlightened people who believed superstitious things about Jesus coming back and the world coming to an end. These teachers realized that when you believe that about the future, you're likely to live a moral life in the present. Now, Roman society was so evil and so promiscuous that the life that faithful Christians lived radically set them apart from society. They didn't party like crazy. They didn't sleep around. There, there were other differences as well. And these made them outcasts from society, and it made it hard for them to advance economically and financially and socially in Roman society. And these false teachers thought that this moral prudishness was altogether unnecessary based on mere superstitions. Doesn't this all sound pretty relevant to us today? Call it rationalism, call it deism, call it theological liberalism. It goes along with the idea that, that what's really real is, is what you can see and what you can touch, who you can sleep with, what you can buy and own, what you can eat and drink. I remember picking up Reader's Digest magazine a few years ago. It was their thousandth issue. It was a, a special issue devoted to the big ideas that would change our lives in the next five to ten years. And here's what the feature article said. Um, don't worry about that. We're not having any slides till the, there might be one at the very end, but you can just ignore that. All right, here's what the feature article said. So we've seen the future, and guess what? It's all about you. You, the consumer, you, the employee, you, the media master. In these and ten other trends, we've discovered that the power of the individual grows every day. This issue is our gift to all of you, a guide to help you plan a future which is more fulfilling, more exciting, and definitely more fun. That's our world today, right? And these false teachers were saying, go for it. Don't let religious superstitions rain on your parade. Go for it. Enjoy. Well, Peter disagrees. Not that Peter's against having fun, but, but not fun in every way at any cost. And so Peter writes to remind us of some things which these false teachers have conveniently forgotten. 
Because Peter wants us to think clearly. So first in verses 5 to 7, Peter reminds us that God is concerned about this world and God has demonstrated his care by intervening in the past. Peter points first of all to the creation of the world as evidence of this. He reminds us that at one time the earth was formless and void. It was a, a chaotic brooding sea that was empty and lifeless. That's the way Genesis 1 pictures it. But God spoke and brought, God brought forth dry land and life, form and, and order replaced formless chaos and life filled the, the empty watery void. Then when this good creation degenerated again into evil and chaos and wickedness, God spoke again and, and he brought the waters back to cover the earth. God undid the creation. He washed it clean. He started over. Don't say God isn't involved, Peter is saying. Don't forget what he did. Not only did he create the world, but he destroyed it by a flood when it grew helplessly wicked. Then Peter goes on in verse 7, don't think God won't step in again. Even now, he says, there's fire stored up to purge and to destroy the world once more. Now, we're kind of squeamish about judgment these days, aren't we? It's unfashionable to threaten people with God's wrath. But let me ask you, do we really want to live in a world where ultimately there's no justice? A world run by a God who doesn't care if people run amok, if they victimize one another? As the Bible scholar N.T. Wright puts it, judgment is necessary unless we were to conclude absurdly that nothing much is wrong with our world. Or blasphemously, that God doesn't mind very much about what's wrong. Judgment will come, Peter says, because God is involved and in control, and God is just and good. God has stepped in to set things right before, and he will surely do it again. Then second in verses 8 to 10, Peter directly addresses the false teachers' assumptions that Jesus isn't going to come back. Some interpreters suggest that the false teachers were picking up on the fact that many uh, early Christians were expecting Jesus to return in the lifetime of the 12 apostles. After all, Jesus had said to his apostles in Matthew 16, 28, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's kind of an ambiguous statement. I mean, what does coming in his kingdom mean? Well, evidently, many took it to mean what, what we could see why they took it this way, that, that it meant that Jesus would return before all of the apostles died. But now, by the time of Second Peter, the apostles are dying out. There are a few left, and still, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We know from history that this created quite a crisis in the early church close to the end of the first century. And perhaps that's part of what the false teachers are picking up on and they're sneering at the idea that Jesus is going to come back at all. You know, time is running out. Where is he? But Peter reminds us in verse 8 that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. If the Lord promised to come back and it's taking longer than we think, this doesn't mean that he's just lazy in keeping his promise. It means rather that he has a different perspective. He's got the big picture in view. 
We look at life from the 15 or the 40 or the 70 short years that we've been on this globe and we think we know what God should do. But Peter is inviting us to step back and to take in the the big picture that God sees. God has seen generations come and go. The Greeks, the Romans, the time of Charlemagne, the great Chinese dynasties, the, the Incas, the Aztecs, the great British Empire the Soviet Union, the United States of America. If Jesus is slow in returning, don't think it's because God is just a slacker. The truth is our short life is teeny compared to the centuries and the millennia of human history. God is doing something big here and he's committed to doing it right. In fact, verse 9, he's very patient, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So God holds back that fire that he has in store, which one day he will unleash to make all things right in the world. Over the past few years, there have been a number of wildfires in Southern California. And during the 2003 fires, there were stories of people who were warned to evacuate their homes, but they didn't take those warnings seriously. They didn't realize the speed and the ferocity of these fires. They thought they had time to pack a few more things, their TV, their um, computers, or maybe that they were going to fight the fire in their backyard with a garden hose. One man, John Smaldrich, who lived through that time, told of frantically warning his neighbors, and he said, they looked like they were packing for a trip. The ones who listened to me and left the area lived. The ones who didn't died. That's how fast and powerful the fires were. God holds back his judgment, giving us, thick-headed though we are, more time to escape. But Peter goes on in verse 10, don't let his patience with us lull you into complacency. The day of the Lord, he warns, will come like a thief, unexpectedly, suddenly. Then beginning in verse 10, he describes how it will all pan out. The heavens will disappear with a roar being destroyed by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Intense, huh? These verses describe what's been called the cosmic conflagration when it all burns. And I want to take some time on this description of the end for two reasons. First, because it's very relevant to some contemporary issues. Popular preachers have used these verses to predict that our world will end in a huge nuclear holocaust. They've also used them to argue that that it makes no sense taking care of the environment or trying to reform uh, corrupt governments or oppressive economic systems because any day now it's just going to burn anyway. So why bother? Second, I want to take some time here because this is a surprising text. What I mean is that there are a lot of places in the New Testament which talk about the Lord's return. A number of them even threaten that the wicked will be burned up. But this is the only text in the New Testament which describes anything like the whole cosmos going up in flames. And if Christians are going to use this text to guide our involvement or our lack thereof in in the pressing issues of our day, then we better understand it correctly, right? 
Well, let me make three observations about this text, and we'll put our thinking caps on and see if we can understand this as best we can, or at least get the wheels turning. First observation, Peter's main point is clear. This present heavens and earth will be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth, verse 13. And since the new heavens and the new earth will be the home of righteousness, nothing that's wicked or evil or tainted or imperfect will make it out of this present creation and into the new one. That's the main point. The last chapter of of Revelation, which um, the Kramers read part of, makes the same point. Listen to Revelation 21. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heavens and earth had passed away. Verse 3 and 4, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verses 7 and 8, Those who are victorious will inherit this. Think of that football game, game again. Those who are victorious will inherit this. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice pagan or magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So first observation, the main point is clear. Second observation, the fire which in Second Peter will burn up this present creation may or may not be a literal fire. Now, let me give you three reasons that I say this. Reason A, as I said before, no other scripture in the New Testament leads us to suspect that the present creation will burn up in a ball of fire. Read Jesus' predictions about his second coming. Read the book of Revelation. Read Romans 8, 19 to 21. It says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, just to read that, it sounds like Paul is saying not that our present creation will be destroyed, but that it will be set free from decay to enjoy the good rule of God's children. Reason B, in some of the places in Scripture which talk about the fire of God's judgment, that fire is clearly a figurative fire. Take 1 Corinthians 3, for instance, where Paul talks about a purifying fire that will test our work. What we build out of hay and wood and straw will burn up, Paul says, and what we build out of gold and silver and costly stones will be tested and will survive. Paul's talking here about our ministry. He's talking about our efforts to help others grow and mature in in their walk with Jesus. If our ministry is like straw, it will burn. But if it's like gold, it will remain. Now, clearly here, the straw and the gold are figurative. And so it's likely that the fire that tests the straw and the gold may be figurative as well. Or take... Zephaniah 3.8 in the Old Testament. It's just about the only other place in, in the Bible which talks about the world burning up. And in fact, it may be the verse Peter is alluding to in our passage. God says in Zephaniah 3.8, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. 
But then listen to the very next verse. God says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. Now wait a minute. If God just burned up the whole world with fire, what people will be left for God to purify their lips? That's why many interpreters think Zephaniah is speaking in a metaphor here. Kind of like if I say, New York killed Philadelphia a few weeks ago. They smashed them. They crushed them. They clobbered them. Wasn't that a happy moment for those of you who saw the game? <laughs> now you get the point, right? Even though I'm not speaking literally. And so it's possible that Peter is getting across his point, not quite literally. It's possible. Reason C even Peter isn't consistent with the fire image. Earlier in his letter, in 2.17, he says that the fate of the false teachers is blackest darkness, not being burned in fire, like we might expect. So is the utter burning up and destruction of the whole creation literal or figurative? Well, I'd say the answer isn't totally clear, and some people would disagree with me. But... Either way, let's not miss Peter's point. God's judgment will be fierce and comprehensive and inescapable. Everything gets subject to God's holy judgment and nothing and no one that is not completely righteous makes it into the new creation. We can thank God for Jesus who makes us completely righteous when we put our faith in him. Third and final observation on this text about the cosmic conflagration. The key question then is what is the relationship between the present heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth? Is there continuity between this world and the next or is there discontinuity or is there some of both? Will God just take this present creation and, and clean it up and and upgrade it like Romans 8 seems to suggest? Or will God completely do away with this present creation and create something completely new like Second Peter seems to suggest? Or is it something in between? Well, this is a hugely important question. Let me remind us by way of analogy why it's so important. Ann and I lived in an old rental house once, and when we signed a year's lease, the owner told us after that he was going to tear down the house and build a new one in its place. As that year's lease came closer and closer to an end, we had less and less motivation to take good care of that house, right? <laughs> now think how our motivation would be different if at the end of that year, instead of taking the place down, the owner had planned to come in and to lovingly restore and to renovate that old house to its original beauty and charm and then rent it out to us again. Can you see the difference? And this is an important question when it comes to Christians' views toward this present world, toward ecology, toward social justice, toward other practical matters. If this present world is just junk to be trashed and burned so that we can escape to a better spiritual world, then that's one less motivation to be concerned about this present world. But if God is committed to preserving all that is good about this present creation and in some way redeeming it and transforming it into eternity, then 
what we do now in and with this world will have eternal consequences. So which is it? Trash or transformation or some of both? Well, the very best way that I know to answer this question is to look at the one bit of this present creation which has already completely made the transition from this present creation to the new creation. Does anyone know what that is? The resurrection, that's close. The resurrection of who? Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. That's why Easter is so important. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he became part of the new creation that we're still looking forward to. And he became the proof that it's coming. In fact, it's already here. Not here fully yet, but it's here. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. There's more to come, more harvest to come. And what happened to Jesus at his resurrection is what one day will happen to all who belong to him. And in some way, to all that belongs to him. So what was Jesus like after his resurrection? Well, he wasn't the same, was he? He could walk through doors. He could walk through walls. His followers didn't recognize him always. But yet he was the same, wasn't he? His followers did recognize him as Jesus some of the time. He still had the scars on his hands and his side. He still ate fish and bread like real human beings do. He was the same, but he was different. His new creation body had continuity with the old, but at the same time it had discontinuity too. And so will it be with the rest of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. This has ramifications for what we do in and with this world now. Because God will ensure that both we and it seems his whole creation will one day be resurrected, reborn, renewed, transformed in wonderful ways that we can't even fully anticipate now. And this is true whether Peter means that this present creation will be literally destroyed by fire or not. Either way, that destruction doesn't mean there will be no continuity between this world and the next. Let me explain. When, when our present bodies die and disintegrate into the ground, but Jesus comes back and raises us up again at the last day, we'll be new and transformed, but we'll still be us, right? So in the same way, the new world, Scripture seems to indicate, if you read the whole thing, will still be a world that we recognize, even though it will be a new, transformed world. All right, that's a lot to chew on. Well, in conclusion, that brings us to the crux of the whole passage, which is how should we then live? Peter makes it clear in verses 11 to 12. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And in verse 13... The new heavens and the new earth are a home of righteousness. A home for the righteous. So get busy being righteous, is what Peter's saying. 
N.T. Wright explains this magnificently. After he surveys all that it means to be righteous, he ends with love. And the wonderful love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And we saw last week, if we can have that slide, I don't know if it's working. But we saw that love in the end zone is the epitome and the end goal of our spiritual growth. And so right reflects. The point of 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is not our duty. It is our destiny. It is the language Jesus spoke. And we are called to speak it so that we can converse with him. It is the food they eat in God's new world. And we must acquire the taste for it here and now. It is the music God has written for all his creatures to sing. And we are called to learn it and to practice it now so as to be ready when the conductor brings down his baton. It is the resurrection life. And the resurrected Jesus calls us to begin living it with him and for him right now. So CBC, Peter has reminded us again of why we must make every effort to grow spiritually, to get down the football field. Remember, it's a team sport. So what's our strategy? What's our playbook as a church? Well, as I said, our youth have been learning the life shapes this past fall, and they've been seeing, I think, what a visual, intuitive way the life shapes give us to remember and to conceive of some tools to help us grow spiritually. And for our challenge this morning, they're going to come and they're going to teach us another of the shapes. They're going to teach us the square, which is the model that Jesus gave us for making disciples, the model he gave us for helping one another to grow spiritually. So I'm going to invite Dylan and the rest of his crew to come. All right, crew. All right, so uh, to start off, the four, we asked four people to... Uh...